Folks, it's Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is March the 6th, 2013, and this is episode 1083 of the Survival Podcast. And today we're going to talk about martial arts, martial arts training both with an instructor and at home alone, and even, even making some of your own training aids instead of spending lots of money. In fact, You'll hear my heart stop when I find out how much one particular martial arts training aid will tend to cost versus how simply you can build one for yourself. Uh, we'll be doing that with a gentleman named Young Smith. I'll have him on in just a moment. Before I do, though, let's go ahead and take care of our housekeeping and our sponsors. Sponsor of the day number one today, Jeff, the Berkey Guy Gleason. Uh, you know, what are you going to get from the Berkey Guy? I don't think anybody would be shocked to hear that the Berkey guy has Berkey water filtration systems. But what he also has is some of the best pricing available anywhere on Berkey systems. And I will tell you, he has the best service you will get anywhere under the sun for just about anything. The man is a freaking customer service maniac. I'd say even to his own detriment in other walks of life, other than his business, which I guess... Other than his family is probably the most important thing in the world to Jeff. He's a great member of our community. He's been here taking care of you for a long time. And where else are you going to get your Berkey system and accessories from? The non-Berkey guy? Why would you do that? Why not go to the Berkey guy? There's nobody, uh, nobody other than Jeff that is the Berkey guy. You'll find his website, not at theberkeyguy.com, which I don't know why he doesn't own that. Uh, maybe he does, but uh, directive21.com is his website. Directive, num and then the number's 21.com, or click on his banner at thesurvivalpodcast.com to be sure you're dealing with the Berkey guy, not the non-Berkey guy that says he's the Berkey guy. Next up today, the Free State Project, uh, with the vision of liberty in our lifetime by voting with your feet. I've been on this heavily lately. The foundation of our republic is one one state continuously does things in a stupid way, New Jersey, or continuously oppresses its citizens, California, or does both of them, New York, that citizens might decide to leave and go to a better place, a, a state that more values their liberty, like New Hampshire, which is the location and ground zero of the Free State Project. Well, I would tell you if your state's oppressive and you can find more liberty anywhere, I would also tell you the fight for liberty anywhere is a fight for liberty everywhere. And some folks that are really doing it right and way up on your list of places to consider for your new home should be the great state of New Hampshire. Check them out today at freestateproject.org. And remember, I so believe in what the Free State Project is doing that they don't sponsor me. They get this spot for free. I sponsor them because I believe that their fight for liberty is one worth backing. And even if it's not in the cards for you to move to New Hampshire, and maybe you're going to move somewhere else or stay where you're at and fight where you're at, you can still help them and you can still support them. Check them out today, freestateproject.org. Next up, I want to remind you about 13 Skills. Dorothy is trying to feature a few people a week in their updates on their skills. If you email her your uh, blog posts or forum posts or Flickr slideshow or anything like that at skillgirl at 13skills.com, maybe she'll feature you on the 13 Skills blog. If you're not part of the 13 Skills community yet, what are you waiting for? Get on over to 13skills.com and sign up and start improving your skills in 2013. There's a lot of time left, but the time is ticking away. 2013, you know what, guys? When this month's over, the first 25% of the year will be gone. Are you working for liberty? Are you working to build your skills? 
or you're sliding backward on the scale. It's up to you, man. Tick, tick, tick. The time is moving along. I just talked about, uh, you know, voting with your feet. If you're not going to New Hampshire, go somewhere. Go somewhere better, especially if you live in one of the states that are making up the naughty list. Uh, and help us determine who's on the naughty list. We have 90 days to do that. We're about 10 days into it. You can learn more at walkingtofreedom.com. Also, check out TSP Gear Shop and TSP Mint. TSP Gear and TSP Mint.com, both of them. Great ways you can help support the show and get some really cool prices on silver and get some really cool survival podcast gear. Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Hey, if you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. And you can help support the show at about 18.3 cents an episode, Military Law Enforcement Peace Corps. Active duty and prior service, along with first responders like paramedics, you do qualify for a discount. If you email me before or not after you join at jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com, put service discount in the subject line and tell me a little bit about who you are and what you're doing or who you are and what you did of your prior service, and I'll send you that discount code that will save you even more money. And folks, with that, I'd like to say, hey, young man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Actually, I said that, hey, young, welcome to the Survival When I say young man, it sounds like I'm calling you young man. <laughs> uh, I get that all the time, actually. You'll, you'll never be old because you'll always be young. Yeah, that's cool. I didn't even think about it that way. Um, I gave people a little bit of your background, but we're here to talk about martial arts today and how that interplays with prepping. Uh, you want to tell people just a little bit about how you got into martial arts, kind of, kind of where you're coming from on, on this subject? Um, well, I mean, I guess my story is a little unique. I, as a kid, had dyslexia and was very uncoordinated and uh, good. It didn't fit into, into any real category. Uh, actually, my best friend had brain cancer and had, had, uh, surgery. So my best friend wore a hockey helmet when I was like nine years old. Uh, so, you know, I was a, a, a victim to some bullying and stuff and not athletic and, not good at school, and uh, my dad ended up taking us to a karate class, which this famous martial arts guy, well, not famous, but this high-ranking martial arts guy moved into our small town, and I studied with him for a while and um, really enjoyed it, and then just kind of eh, sort of fizzled out in, in my training. My dad kept up with it pretty much, but in 81, in ninth grade, uh, tells you how old I am. Um, <laughs> we, uh, him and I started training together in Shotokan, uh, which is like a Japanese system. Um, and since that time, I've had opportunity to study with a variety of, of different people, modern Arnese, uh, with Riku Kempo and, uh, Chen style Tai Chi and Yang style Tai Chi. And, and then, um, we, my dad and I ran a karate school for about 25 years. And during that time, of course, we had different people come that had, uh, they had ranking in other styles. So I had opportunity to train with them and been to quite a few seminars, been to, uh, over the years, trained with, uh, Professor Wally J and just a, a number of in- incredible people that I'm honored to, to say that I've met and been mangled by. So that's kind of my background. Like I said, I, I really, I didn't have skill. I was really this wimpy kid, and martial arts didn't make me this amazing, amazing person. It changed me internally. Of course, it changed me physically too. I had developed physical skills, but I think internally is the the big change of confidence and and not being fear and sort of in a 
prepper mindset, I'd say, of, of not becoming a victim anymore because I didn't look like a victim. I think there's a huge thing to that beyond the um, the mechanics, so to speak, that there is a a shift with the right training in any type of training, whether martial or otherwise, that moves the mentality of the individual from victim to non-victim. And I think a lot of people that are of the predator nature um, have this innate ability to pick up on people who already perceive themselves as a victim. There and I think a lot of times the, the types of training that we're talking about today go a long way to avoid the confrontation. You never even knew there was going to be one. Yeah. Like the, you have no idea how many times that might have actually prevented you from being in uh, a victimized situation just because you're no longer kind of throwing off this prey vibe. Yeah. Well, there was a, a psychology study done many years ago where they took a like a 20-second video clip, showed it to a bunch of inmates, and every inmate chose the same people that they said they that that would be their victims because they all looked um, they all looked like victims. They were uncoordinated. They weren't paying attention. It, it just like I said, they gave off the vibe of a victim. <clears throat> I don't know if you know who Carlos Carlos Mencia is. He's a comedian, um, and he has this bit that he does, and he talks about if you watch like um, documentaries like on lions. You see, like, you know, there's all these wildebeest coming down. There's a bunch of lions just kind of watching them, and nobody's really running or scared yet. And it, he does it for humor. He's like, you know, the one wildebeest only has three legs, but you can tell, like, he's paying attention. Yeah. And, and when he's coming down the hill, and you would think the lion would go after him, he just kind of looks at the lion, and he just looks over his shoulder like, yeah, that one behind me, you know. <laughs> you know, and, like, the lion and the wildebeest, I don't remember how he delivers it. It's pretty funny, but, you know, basically saying that, like, the, the the guy behind me may have four legs, but he's much easier to take down. And of course, the lions end up like like letting the three legged guy go and take this other wildebeest down. And I think there is that dynamic. And your your point about the um, the uh, the inmate study, I think it's very very true that you know when you talk to people that victimize others, you always say, "Do you have a way you target people?" And so they give you different methodologies, but they all say yes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Just look for the look for the weak one, and I mean, it, it's this kind of mindset has been around for thousands of years. The uh, the samurai, when they sit in a room, they they sit in the corner so they can see all of the whole area, so they can see the entranceway. Uh, all of those mindsets have been in play for a long time, so they don't allow themselves to be victims because they're watching. You take tactical training today, and they tell you to do the same exact thing. So you're right; it is kind of timeless. On that note, though, a lot of people will say, you know, wh why do I care about martial arts? I mean, what does this got to do with prepping? I got a gun. You know, if I'm, in a con I'm just going to shoot you. Um, so, so what do I need all of this, uh, this, this uh, kung fu or karate or whatever for? Well, um, I mean, one thing is not you can't always have your gun with you, and, and I always have my hands with me. I don't leave home without them. Uh, that you can. There, there are situations where you need to be prepared. Um, in the 70s, there was a, a famous uh, martial arts guy, Dan Inosanto, and, and he did some police training videos where the officers were told to come into a room, said investigate like there's a problem, and um, he would just all of a sudden jump up and run at them with a knife and, and cut them before they had time to get their knife out. And not that long ago, my my pastor went to a like a gun training, like an advanced gun training class, and they were using simunition, which 
kind of like real bullets, still hurts, but doesn't kill you. And they did one of the one of the things that they did is they had somebody on each side of a room and they said, as soon as you see the other person move, pull your gun and, and shoot them. And so my my pastor was the guy that was going to get shot. And as soon as he moved now my pastor is a runner, so he's pretty fast. He crossed the room and smacked the simunition gun out of the guy's hand before he had a chance to shoot him. So you always need to be, you need to have a plan B. You need to have something that just in case, and even just the fact of, of pulling a gun, if somebody's close to you, you've got to be able to deal with keeping them from grabbing your gun so that you can defend yourself with your gun or so you can get to your gun. Well, I think there's definitely that's the case. I mean, if you get into any kind of a situation where you're within arm's reach of, of, of an assailant, and you're drawing a weapon, what's the natural response of that person other than to reach down and engage you before you get the weapon drawn? Yeah. And there's an incredible amount of time between reaching back to grab that weapon and getting it up to bear on the target. I mean, I mean, there's these guys like Bob London or whatever, but there's martial arts guys that are ridiculous too, right? Yeah. So in the real world where you and I and most people are, there's, there is a certain advantage if you are observing the draw, it, just with a physical confrontation. Well, and, and police officers even are, are trained to go straight back. And yep. anybody that, that's done any kind of boxing or anything realizes eventually if you go straight back, you either hit a wall or you fall. And if you fall, your gun is on your – most people is on your right-hand side, and you actually fall on your gun that you're trying to get to. <laughs> so that makes it even harder. <clears throat> What are your thoughts on, on this kind of a thing? When I was a little kid, when I first started taking martial arts myself, um, Bruce Lee was the bomb, right? Everybody wanted to be Bruce Lee. <laughs> so the first thing I did was get some kite string and some sticks and made myself a pair of nunchucks. <laughs> and I got pretty decent at spinning them around, at least with my right hand. My left hand was kind of uncoordinated and all, but I could do some tricks and stuff. And I finally talked my dad into getting me into a proper karate class and we actually looked and found an instructor that taught not just hand, you know basic you know weapons free martial arts but did things with weapon katas with 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 you know bokens and swords and and nunchuck and and all of these different things and I went there and that's what I wanted to learn man I don't I want all this stretching and crap I want to learn how to swing these chucks oh, yeah <laughs> and we did basically four days a week of you didn't even look at that stuff and one day a week dedicated to weapons training and and each student kind of did hone in on something they specialized in and my sensei told me since the weapon is an extension of your hand it's important to know the underlying art and i think that translates into firearms training oh absolutely yeah because the, the gun is just another it's not a nunchuck it's a gun it's it's exactly the same type of a translation isn't it yeah, um, I man, I did the nunchuck thing too. I was, you know, could spin them and flip them. I looked like a, a dang, uh, what do you call it, a marching band majorette, spinning, flipping them, and um, <clears throat> I could do all kind of crazy things. And not until I started studying uh, modern Arnis did the Filipino, the stick fighting stuff. Um, yep. Did I understand about actually making contact with a weapon and how that changes things and how that how that's different because I used to swing them and could swing them really fast and, and, and look good and did all the katas and the movements and, 
I didn't really understand about actually using it in a fight and how that would, <clears throat> excuse me, how that would, uh, well, how that would translate. And yeah, it completely changes the dynamic. I remember when I, when I first started taking this, this was, I was about a 10 or 11 years old. And there was this heavy bag in the, in the, in the dojo that was completely taped up with, um, duct tape. And I figured it was, when I first saw it, I figured it was like, you know, one that was just tore up and you, you tape them up to do that. And it turned out this was taped up for a reason so it wouldn't get tore up. Yeah. And then we, you know, we're learning some stuff with the chucks and then go hit the bag. And the first thing you do is put a bruise the size of a golf ball on your forearm. <laughs> yep. And you start to learn something about control and a lot of this stuff. And I think that there's, I think, I mean, my kind of my next question for you is, you know, what's the best martial art for a person to study? And I, I'm kind of leading into that with there are certain, I've seen martial arts that have no realism in them at all. Right. It's all katas and forms and stuff, and there's some timing and, and things learned by that. But to me, if there's not some level of, like, if you're going to learn to use a weapon, then you better get some contact. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that, I mean, that kind of opens a couple of doors, a, a few questions. But in, in, in general, which, the, the which martial arts should you learn, um, a few factors come into play. Uh, you know, well, what do you have available to you? What's, what's near you if you, if you've got a halfway decent school that's near your house, you're not as likely to drive um, an hour and a half drive to go to a school that you think is better. Though I have had that. I've, I had people drive, you know, an hour to come to my school for, for many years. Uh, so they, you know, a lot of people are really dedicated. But <clears throat> so finding a decent school is a is a challenging thing. Um there's there's a lot of questions that come into play, but the number one that I tell that I tell people to to ask about or to look at is what is their uh, what is their goal, and do they want their kid or do they want to be like the instructor? So look at the instructor of the school and ask yourself: Is this the person that I want to be like? Do I want to? carry myself like them? Do I want to talk like them? Do I want to have their attitude? Do I have want to have their skills? And I'd much rather rather go to a good instructor of a style that I wasn't as excited about learning um, than to go to one that I'd kind of like to learn more from, but I'm less likely to actually attend. And I mean, kind of in your experience, what are some of the different arts that you've 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 had experience with uh, as a student? And I, I imagine with your time now, probably as a teacher, at least on some levels, because I know in most good martial arts programs, as the student advances, they at least take over some level of assistant teaching. Oh yeah, because uh, it's part of your training, basically, to learn to teach. Yeah, absolutely. And and we started that with kids. Um, when our our students, when I ran the school commercially, the as soon as you learned one thing, you you began teaching, and that one thing, or at least leading it in some small capacity, and we helped you to learn how to teach. So all of those factors came into play. So, um, so the different styles kind of have to do partially with your build, um, and where the where the style was developed. So. Like there's there's types of kung fu that are very uh, close and small and close range, and then there's other styles of kung fu that are running, jumping, 
big motion, large sweeping, uh, large swinging motions because they were developed in the lands where there was more room. And like the Wing Chun was developed in places where there were were cities where there, there was close range and you had, you know, less area to to deal with. So, you know, like the like Taekwondo is very popular, Taekwondo and Tang Sado. And um, over the years, I've met people that, you know, a lot of people that have studied it. And just the I just think it's kind of interesting when people come in and they've studied Taekwondo for many years and they have really short legs. And yeah. I, I just kind of like Taekwondo is like 99% kicking. And it's great that you can kick well, and that will be very deceptive. But if you had long legs, it seems like that would be a more fitting system for you. And if you were a really tall, skinny guy like me, then in some capacities, a wrestling-type system like judo might be a little a little challenging for you to deal with the with the body mass and I mean I was always a skinny little kid and and getting thrown around was pretty painful and stressful for me uh yeah because if you're if you're a kind of a tall guy and you end up with a little stocky guy that's well built you know you maybe you're five nine you know as a kid but say an adult six footer and you've got a little five foot six guy that's a very experienced grappler and you end up in a in a, in a uh, ground engagement, you got a problem. Those little guys are, you know, they can move in ways that you really can't kind of get your arms around them. Yeah, yeah, and it and it, it takes a real skill to to do that. I, I I remember when UFC came out and and Hoist Gracie was doing his thing, and and I was just like, wow, that's incredible because he was my build and my size. Of course, he was much more of an athlete than than I am um, <laughs> or ever have been. But it's just uh, kind of looking for what the the system emphasizes and what your build is like and what your what you're interested in in becoming like. Do you want to become the grappler? Is that what's important to you? So that would be a, a, an important factor in looking for a school. It just almost as important as the instructor. Yeah, I mean, in a real world scenario, though, see, like that's something that I don't ever want. I, I don't know how to do it if I have to, but I don't ever want to end up in that scenario. And I'll kind of explain to you why. We were doing some training with uh, with Valerie Asinov from from the uh, former Soviet Union. Yeah, I watched some of his videos. They were really good. Yeah, he's he's an amazing guy. And we had a couple guys in there, and we put them into a scenario. And we basically had them padded up a little bit and said, you know, don't try to kill each other, but let this go the way that it would. They end up rolling around, pushing each other around, and I walked by the one guy, and I and I drew with a chalked training knife a line from one kidney to the other and, and walked across the room, and they never even realized anything happened. And when we pulled them apart, I said, yeah, you've, you've just lost both your kidneys because you were completely at the mercy of someone else that would take the opportunity while you're engaged with, you know, my my brother or whatever. Yeah. And, and and to me, that's like grappling something. But boy, if you get taken down, you better know how to do it. And, and it's fine for UFC and all that. But in UFC, nobody's about to put a chair over your back. Absolutely. You know, and I think there's there's some like the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and all. It's amazing stuff, but some of that gets lost on people because they think, well, like they're and that's that's my concern with martial arts. When anybody becomes too specialized in a single art or a single form, or not even a single art, a single discipline within an art. Yeah. They become susceptible to everything else. 
Yeah, um, one of the first things I, I taught and and still teach is is slight paranoia. When when a kid would join a school, join my school, and they'd all line up like a you know a traditional karate class, you know one of the first things I do is is slip up behind them and put them in a chokehold. Now I wouldn't like choke them, but I just grab them and yeah. just kind of play around and make them kind of fight to get out of it. And I'd let go of them, and about ten minutes later, I'd come walking up and. This time when I came walking out behind them, they started turning and looking over their shoulders. You know, what, what's this guy doing? And they, I said, excellent. Now you have made your first, that's your first lesson is just becoming slightly paranoid and watching everything around you so that you have situational awareness. Now, obviously, if we could give a perfect scenario, every potential student would find a great match in a teacher and they would have a great studio or dojo or however, depending on what art you're in and what it's called to go to or just a gym. And they would go there every day and they would train for an hour or two every day and they would, they would come along and they would have correction all the way along. And when they were doing something wrong, somebody would be there to correct, you know, their form and their movement. But there's people that are like, I, I don't have time for that. Yeah, or I-, I, I really don't. So, is there any methods that you think are maybe best methods for people to go ahead and train if if they're they don't have a class to attend? Um, yeah, thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. Um, my first recommendation sounds kind of funny is uh, ballroom dancing, um, <laughs> and and I mean that in all honesty is that like ballroom dancing is timing, ballroom dancing is distance, it's being athletic. Um, I would imagine that a male ballerina, if you made him made him mad, he could probably kick your butt pretty good. Those guys are pretty amazingly athletic. So any kind of thing that would help you to become athletic, physical, uh, or anything that would make you, if you want to call it tough, uh, you know, playing some kind of sport that that just is physically demanding and and deals with impact. Uh, so any kind of activity that helps your athleticism helps you look less like a victim. And then after, after that, then there's, uh, things that you can do to train. Uh, of course, everybody thinks, okay, well, I'll just get a punching bag and learn how to punch and, and hit it. And, and that's fine. Uh, and that is a step. And I do recommend that it also does have its limitations. So uh, so what are your thoughts? What do you think about the whole uh, dancing thing? I, I think it's completely relevant. Um, I think that anything that works with movement and timing, but I think that the person that needs to translate that to, you know, kind of the first rule is not to get hit. Yeah. Right? So, so if that movement can then be used to gain an advantage or even – and I think we need to be training people as teachers in martial arts more to avoid conflict than to, to triumph in conflict. We'll triumph in conflict when there's no other way. And I think a lot of times simply by being able to extricate yourself in a situation uh, or in a lot of situations, the, the aggressor gets a very short window with which to use their aggression before – you know, 15 people grab them by the head and drag them outside into a parking lot. Yeah. So if you can, if you can withdraw from the conflict, and I, I mean, because I don't know how many, and I think it's a mistake, but a lot of martial arts say, well, if you're in a bar and this happens, how much time do these people spend in bars? I don't know, but um, 
you know, in, in that situation, there's usually a guy like named Earth or something <laughs> that weighs like 400 pounds. It's yep. a bouncer because he likes to beat people up. Mm-hmm. Right. So it would be better if there was an aggressor in that situation that they were clearly the aggressor and you were clearly withdrawing from the situation. I think that movement plays a big role in that. And if you do have to, to reciprocate with force, that gains an advantage because would I rather hit a person with the same right cross, just plain old right cross, while they're firm and solid and standing and ready for it, or while they're off balance? Right. And which situation is that person going to be more impacted by my blow, while they're off balance or while they're on balance? And, of course, the answer is off balance. So if I can move with balance and draw you in as you attack, you're going to naturally, unless you're really trained and know what you're doing, going to go into an off-balance mode. Yeah. Well, I mean, the I'll jump in that uh, the first thing that you said, I agree with and I said for many years, but once I kind of assessed it, I had to kind of retrain my thinking. Uh, you said the number one rule is to not get hit. Well, regrettably, if most fight situations, you don't deal with somebody walking up to you and saying, I'm going to hit you now or getting to sure. a, getting into a fighting stance. If they get into a yeah. fighting stance, you run away. That's that's my method. And yeah. <laughs> you know, um, it, most situations that happen, uh, a fight is somebody sucker punching you or there's some other situation going on and then you get drawn into it. You know, there's some kind of fight happening beside you and Excuse me, and they take a swing at you. So, um, I, so that's why my second rule is learn how to get hit. Yeah, yeah. Right? So number one, don't get hit. But if you're going to get hit, learn how to learn how to absorb the blows. And I mean, with the Russians, that's like part of your training is to sit there and get beat on. But it's not. See, when I tell people that, it always like creates the wrong image because these guys are actually in their own rough way gentle. I don't know how to put yeah. it. It's not like remember like Karate Kid, the old one, right? Where the guy's like beating his students up and throwing them. It's not like that. It's, it's like you can't learn to deal with a blow unless you actually experience it. Well, I've had multiple black belts come into my school that had trained in a particular style that's pretty well known. And in that style, they do not punch to the face. In okay. their training, they do not punch to the face. Well, the first thing I would do is punch them in the face. <laughs> and, and they would freak out, you know, what's doing? Yeah. We're not allowed to do that. What do you mean? That's yeah. what the guy in the street's going to do. I wouldn't yeah. hurt him, but I would, you know, I would land a punch just enough so they'd know what was going on, and it, it puts a shot. I don't think we're insulting anybody. What is this style? Um, well, Taekwondo is, is Olympic, and okay. it's kind of funny, though, because you can they can kick to the head, Yeah, they're not allowed to punch to the head. Okay. And the, the kick's take longer to get to your head. Now, granted, some Taekwondo people are really dang quick with their kicks, but a punch to the nose is definitely a lot faster. Your hand is closer to their face. Um, so, you know, the, the Taekwondo people that came and, and were sort of this sheltered, um, uh, some, some styles tend to be very, you train in this style and nothing else. You don't cross train. You don't do any of that. And thankfully the, the UFC and the MMA has has kind of opened that door a lot, and people see a see a benefit in studying in, in multiple styles. Sure, because I mean, I I remember back like in the eighties, there I, I remember several teachers I spoke to that were like, if you if you're even going to look at anything else, I won't teach you. Yep. 
Well, not just don't bring it into my studio, but don't even look. If I even know that you're, you know, don't even read a book. Yeah. Unless it's my <laughs> book. That type of thing, you know? Um, yes, that has been the case for a long time and has been very, has been very prominent, the, the selfishness of, of systems. And, and that a little bit comes from the history of, of the martial arts of, Back in the day, that was your self-defense, and it was passed down like from father to son, or to to very very close family members. Um, so it was very much a secret, and you did not share, and that was very very wrong if you shared with anybody. So I mean, even Bruce Lee dealt with that when he opened when he opened his school in America. He got death threats, and and you know, depending on what kind of version you you want to you know, which TV version or book you read, but he, he was attacked and, and had to defend himself because he was teaching to Americans. And not only was he teaching Americans, he was teaching what some call the bastardized version because Jeet Kune Do was pulling from these different disciplines. It was kind of the original modern version of a mixed martial art. Absolutely. And I think what really torqued off people even more was his philosophy of even what I teach you, take what you want and leave the rest behind. And that really seemed to torque some people off. But to me, that's that starts to deal with some of the objections or some of the considerations you put in earlier. Like, you know, the, the, the short, stocky guy is going to be a better grappler than a kicker. And the tall, lanky guy is going to be a better kicker than a grappler. Yep. And, I mean, there's exceptions there. Some tall, lanky guy is going to call me up now and say, oh, I'll grapple with you any day. And I'm sure you will. And I understand that. But But in general... You you generally find that you know wrestlers are not usually really tall skinny guys. They usually have a proportional stockiness to them, and that's what makes them good with leverage and, and things like that. Yeah, and and there is an advantage to a tall guy that can get really low stance and 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 create a lot of power and be a good grappler. And I've also been kicked in the head by some really short people. So. <laughs> Yeah, it, it works both ways. But then there, you know, when the guy's got freaking legs where he can reach out and kick you from six and a half feet away, there's a reach advantage there too. So it's all, and I think that's the thing, like that to have this, like, and that's why I liked when you answered the question, "What's the best martial art?" Is find what works for you. Is kind of the, the short answer of your of your well explained answer is that since there's not one body type and there's not one mental state, that there's not going to be one art that's right for everybody. Yeah. Uh, that's that's definitely true. Um, the uh, the styles that, that I've had opportunity to to work with, I've learned to to try to take a little piece of that um, and apply it to my system, and, and kind of like you say, what Bruce Lee was doing. And and it's interesting that that every continent, every country, pretty much has an indigenous martial art. And to some extent, I would say that Jeet Kune Do is, is an American art, even though Bruce Lee was, you know, Chinese and, and developed a lot of it in China. But he really opened it up and, and started exploring more of the Jeet Kune Do, I would say, in the United States. So I, I would almost say it's it's an American art. I, I would say that anybody that looks at what Bruce Lee did and doesn't think he took anything out of things as American as boxing um, is just not wanting to see it. Yeah. I mean, it just uh, it, there's some of it there. Um, what are your thoughts on what I guess some people re- refer to as like soft styles um, and things like uh, Tai Chi? Yeah, the in the internal, the soft styles. Um, 
usually what you see nowadays is it looks like Tai Chi, but it's basically people that are kind of teaching this um, hug a tree mindset. Uh, let's all just get along and, and, um, and, and not that that's bad stuff. Uh, I, I actually took a, a Tai Chi class quite a while ago or many years ago and it was all older people and there was zero self-defense concepts. And the whole thing was started with meditation and ended with this guided meditation thing. And, and, um, but what I noticed, because my dad and I were in the class and, and we were, you know, pretty athletic at the time, most of the people that were in the class were older people. And I noticed after about three weeks of us training together that without being, you know, told ready one, ready two, you know, for each set of movements, that this group of non-athletic people were all moving in unison. So it really helped their their balance, their awareness, because they had to be aware of each other to move in unison. And that years later, when I really got into the Tai Chi, that I discovered how um, how it increased my strength in my legs, that it increased my flexibility. Um, the You know, I, I had done karate for 24 years before I started Tai Chi, and after six months of Tai Chi, my flexibility, the power in my kicks increased, and I just kind of had a general, more relaxed uh, way about me just because of, of of doing of doing the Tai Chi. So, I think a lot of people have misconceptions about things like Tai Chi for for two reasons. One, you just explained perfectly, because a lot of people that would be better off teaching like. Just the, the movement itself for the purpose of health, like Quijong or something like that, would call it Tai Chi when it's not. I mean, Tai Chi as part of its discipline has things in it like swords. Those are clearly for putting holes in people, yeah. right? So so there is there is a, a true martial art within Tai Chi. So I think that's part of it. But I think the other part is the movements are slow and fluid. And I think that when we look at training, we look at something like a much faster um, hard style, like Taekwondo is a perfect example of a hard, fast moving style. You tend to think that that necessitates that, okay, so if you were to get into a conflict with a Tai Chi person, they would be moving really slowly as they <laughs> bring the sun around the earth or whatever. And I, I think what people don't get is when you train to do something, a certain movement, a certain way, a certain technique over and over and over, it doesn't matter to your mind and your body that you train doing it slowly the speed becomes inherent. The power becomes inherent. So if I taught you with with guns, because it's something much more familiar to the audience probably than, than martial arts, a basic malfunction and, and, and magazine swap drill. And I said, you not only don't need to worry about speed, I, re- I forbid you to get this done in more than 20 seconds. Yep. And I want you to do it 100 times a day for the next six months. And I forbid you to do it more than 20 seconds or less than 20 seconds. Yeah. You need to actually pace yourself and very slowly move your hands, bringing the gun forward, bringing the magazine up. The only time I'm going to let you accelerate it all is to slap it home right at the very last piece of it, working the action very slowly. And you, I mean, it would look ridiculous to somebody to say this is combat training. If I take that person after six months of doing that 
and they've never once tried to do it fast and say, do that as fast as you can, it will blow your mind how quickly they'll execute that movement. Absolutely. It's awesome. and, and that's where I think people lose the inherent value of these softer styles because I think some of us, and I, I speak for myself here, the last thing I need is keyed up and agitated and aggravated as I am is the daily um, kind of thing, something to key me up more. I actually need that centering to pull me down. And I think that the, that's another way that students adapt to a style, I guess. And you know, once in a while, it's good to go beat up a bag or something to get some aggression out. <laughs> but there's only so much of that you can do before you start to kind of, if you're a naturally aggressive person, you push it the other way. You start looking like a roid freak or something. Well, here's a here's a quote for you from my uh, my martial arts friend, Johnny Quest. Um, John Quest, he, uh, he has a saying, slow is smooth, smooth is fast, and slow is fast. Huh. And that, and when you train in these things, you know, one of the things I, I have people do is, is, uh, we spar, we fight, um, slowly and you will realize how quickly you are, you're leaving openings, particularly when people kick, they have a tendency to kind of spread their arms out and to, to do a kick. And when they do that, I can just step in and, and just slowly touch. And it, it's amazing to see how wide open you are. When you slow these things down and create that muscle memory, um, I got a friend of mine that's pretty famous uh, kung, kung fu guy, and uh, many years ago we were discussing tai chi, and he said, "Here, get." We pulled some mats out, and he says, "I'm, I'm going to throw you with a tai chi throw," and he hmm. he just kind of slowly moved his arms, kind of wrapped my arms up, and slowly tossed me about eight feet. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you sit there wondering where the power comes from, but the power is in the technique. And, and I think there's a lot to be said, like you, you just dumped a bunch there that I kind of want to discuss on, on some different levels. One is the very slow sparring. As I've worked with the Russian guys, a lot of people see videos where you see the, the Sistema practitioners doing this very slow sparring and you see a person, you know, take a blow and fall to the ground and they say, well, it's fake. Well, it's not fake. It, it, no, the blow didn't knock the guy to the ground. The guy's been hit that way enough times that he knows that when you're hit that way, yeah. that's where you're going, right? So he's going to go ahead and absorb it just as though it was real to hit the ground and say, now what the hell would I do now that I'm here? Absolutely. With an understanding. And then the other thing is, is you do slow sparring. Something happens that never happens with, with full speeds. And I'm not saying not to do full speed, speed sparring at all. I'm saying that both of them have a place. Yep. You start to actually learn how a fist, a hand, etc., a foot, fits into different pieces of a body. And you start to actually see, okay, what not only not only does this does my hand fit this way into the area underneath the person's ribs, but as I push and that person and we know this is a game and we know we're not going to hurt each other, but that person naturally lets their body respond. I also know what way their head's going to move. Yeah. Right. And now I can just take that energy of their body and just direct it. And something as simple as reaching out with four fingers and pushing them on the chin will send them to the ground, even if they're not that hurt. And again, like you said, your first response, if you can do it, is run away. Well, sometimes it's simply hell on the ground and I'm out of here. Yeah. Because you don't know if there's five dudes with, with switchblades behind that guy. You, you really don't. Absolutely. Or if he's got an and, and as preppers, we have to look toward a place where society may not be as, as decent as it is today. I'll leave it at that. Yeah. Well, uh, a friend of mine in high school almost died. He, uh, 
pretty thick guy, not real athletic, and this little skinny guy, little small skinny guy attacked him. And my friend, the bigger guy, basically beat the other guy up. Every time the guy came in, he slugged him in the face. And after this went on for a little while, he uh, he looked down and he had about 15 puncture holes in his chest where the guy had been stabbing him, and he didn't even he didn't even feel it with the adrenaline and everything that was going on. So I've seen people cut up with with knives and razor blades and not realize they were being cut. Uh, I've seen bouncers grab a guy like in a bear hug and just to take him out of the door. And when they throw the guy out the door, they're, they're you know you're 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 holding them closed basically to try to get a medical treatment so they don't bleed to death. Yeah. So that that definitely does happen. Now here's a story for you. Nothing to do with really martial arts, but and a, a concept of the, the weaker guy is not always the weaker guy. My father told me a story about a guy that he worked construction with. There was a big guy and kind of a smaller guy, and the big guy was always picking on this little guy. And eventually, one day, the little guy just jumped up and grabbed the big guy by both ears and started yanking. <laughs> and uh, the one dude ended up with like this big old cauliflower ear for the rest of his life after it, you know, and everybody kind of messed with him about it. And he never messed with the little guy again. And I think there's a certain amount of, it's not the size of the dog and the fight, but the size of the fight and the dog. And um, that, that's something that I always am looking for when I talk to people that are instructors in martial arts is to not have that, the ego that seems to be, you know, like the good teachers are always humble. Even, and the better they are, the, the tougher they are, the more capable they are, the more humble they become. Well, the, the late Professor Wally Jay um, is just, he was an incredible man. I had opportunity to go to many seminars. If you ever get a chance to Google him and look at watch some videos, he, um, he kind of wrapped people up, and one of his things was a pretzel. And he, uh, he told me at, at this time he was like 81 years old. He's like, okay, now grab me by the throat. I'm like, okay, so I grab him. He goes, I can still talk. And I'm like, okay. So I kind of squeeze a little harder. He's like, I'm still talking. And I really started yeah. kind of pressing. Well, the next thing you know, he's wrapped both my arms, both my legs up, and he's holding me by my big toe. And I can't <laughs> move. <laughs> I can't get loose. Um, and he was just the most incredible, nicest, kindest guy. You just, you always got that vibe from him. He just had a heart of gold and could bring you to, to tears without injuring you. And, and that's the true, the true skill of a master is can, can cause you extensive pain until the moment they let go. And then you're like, Oh, wow, I'm, I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> So you do a lot with uh, homemade training tools, right? What, what are some of your ideas around that so that we can actually get contact and without beating up our buddy and, 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 and develop our skills and our timing and, and our, our strength without, you know, always having to use sparring to do that? Well, there's lots of tools and things, of course, that you can buy that are very good and, and excellent, but we don't always have the money. Um, one of the first one first things that you can do without buying anything is make a fist and tap a wall and just find out where it hurts you to bump something and find out where it doesn't hurt to bump something. And that will help condition your knuckles and help just build that, re that resistance and that toughness of your, of your hands and, and, and knuckles. Um, I mean, I can do knuckle push-ups on concrete because 
Uh, I've done it for years and been able, you know, I, I developed that. When I was in ninth grade, there's no way in heck. I mean, I would have cried if you told me to, to do knuckle push-ups on concrete. Um, it hurt enough to do it on freaking carpet. You know, <laughs> I was, like I said, I was kind of a wimpy kid. And um, so anything that you can incorporate into your daily activity, it sounds kind of silly, but flushing the toilet with your toe, with your foot, um, <laughs> anything to develop balance. Bruce Lee used to tie his shoes. He, he'd put his socks on and tie his shoes standing on one foot. So the foot that was in the air is the one that he would tie. Instead of resting it on something, he would hold that leg up in the air and tie it, and that developed his balance. Um, so anything that you can incorporate into your daily into your daily activity is good for conditioning and timing and and distance. But equipment is fairly easy to build. Of course, um, punching bags are fairly cheap to get and get them on old Craigslist or whatever. But a good old duffel bag just cut cut the the metal snaps off of it and hang it from a tree in your backyard and fill it with sand and old clothes and and when it starts to get holes you just put more duct tape on it and um and just practice building conditioning uh like baseball players that use one arm the density of that one arm becomes thicker and stronger of the bone because it's used more and exercised more so your body becomes stronger and thicker and tougher just from that use. I mean, when they find a skeleton in an archaeological dig, they can immediately go left-handed, right-handed. Oh, yeah. Right. So, I mean, uh, clearly that's true. Yeah. So, uh, you know, uh, just a, a duffel bag, punching bag, hanging in the backyard is good. Um, there's this fancy thing called a, a mukjong that you've probably seen in Bruce Lee movies. It's wooden, and they're doing all these fancy movements and it has arms kind of like wooden arms that stick out. And if you want to drop, you know, $1,200, you can go and go and buy one of those. There's, there's other versions for like 700. And then there's ones that are like PVC <clears throat> that are really cheap, but I don't recommend those at all. What I do recommend is getting a good round fence post drilling a hole through it, taking an old, uh, like, uh, what do you call it, like a junior baseball bat, not a regular size, but a junior size, um, <clears throat> cutting the back end off of it, sticking it into this hole, and putting, uh, uh, what do you call it, a peg through the back so that you can pull on the arm and it won't come out, and then putting some just a light padding around it because you don't want to hit it like you're hitting a punching bag. Uh, and then you have an arm to practice blocking against and an arm to practice pulling. And you can also kick. So you can kick the bottom of the post. You can strike the post. And that's much more realistic. And it kind of has an auditory, uh, uh, what do you call it? like a, the clock of the wooden of of hitting wood is way different than smacking a piece of PVC. Uh, it, it has a satisfying feeling to it. You know, uh, it, how much do these th things cost? I, 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 
I had no idea that anybody spent that kind of money on 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 one of these things. Um, I mean, it's been a little while since I looked at it, but at least around a thousand dollars for a traditional wooden dummy that has three arms and like a fake leg on it, and I can build a lot of those. I might be going into business here and selling them for six hundred dollars. I, well, I mean, your idea about using small size baseball bats—you've got a piece of ash or something like that there—that's very very solid and. Um, it, it actually seems like it's already finished where you cut the end off, throw a peg in it, like you were saying. Um, I, I, I am blown away. I've, uh, I just never priced one. I mean, if I want to hit a piece of wood, I have trees for that, but I really, I, I had no idea. Well, part of the problem is that a traditional one is really heavy and would be expensive to ship. I got so you. if you built, built one that would cost the most would be to send it. And that's why they have all these different ones. And traditional kung fu, kung fu uses all of the uh, the multiple arms. And in general, you can do most of what is done with just a single arm. So you can just have one arm sticking straight at you about chest level. And then you can do all your drills with blocking and grabbing and pulling and, and hitting and kicking and um yeah, junior baseball bats are like ten bucks. So if I really want two arms, I just need to drill two holes. Yeah, I, I <laughs> they, for somebody that wants to like become proficient in using that, you might have just given the best money saving tip ever given on the survival podcast. I <laughs> I'm looking them up now, and yeah, I'm blown away. Like a basic one's like seven hundred bucks. A full tilt, you know, with Stan Jeet Kundo one on. I'm on Immortal Martial Arts right now. Um, maybe they like that that old video game. A thousand bucks. Yeah. Um, and like a hundred bucks for shipping. Wow. I and then you can get it engraved for thirty dollars. Woo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, wow. Uh, that's that's pretty interesting. Anything else? Um, I mean, there's all as much imagination as you can have. There's lots of things. One of my favorite is uh, when you're done with your milk, fill it, rinse it out, and fill it three quarters of the way with water. And you stand, you hang it from a rope in your backyard, stand in the center of it, and then you push it, and you just kind of practice moving out of the way and popping it with a little quick, just a little quick smack. As it as it goes by, but not you're trying to hurt, not trying to knock the crap out of it. Just a a jab, a light jab. Yeah, yeah. And you're practicing moving. So here's your here's your timing and your distance. So you're just practicing different techniques. You're kind of shadow boxing and every once in a while hitting it. And then when you're finished, you hit it dead center, and it just explodes, and the water goes all over the place. But it's like hitting. I don't know if you've ever punched a water bag. Yep, and those have a, a distinct feel. They feel very flesh-like. Well, yeah. this has this big, satisfying splash of water after you've gotten all <laughs> hot and sweaty, and it feels like you're punching somebody. And if you don't hit it dead center, it spins. Yeah, so you know you missed. Yep, I like real-time feedback. I, I'll tell you that, and that's that's real-world feedback. You, you know, there's no arguing over whether you've you you've hit it properly or not. It either broke or it didn't. Um, I'll give you another kind of an example of just a training thing. My father and I got very big into uh, lifting weights when I was in my late teens getting ready to go in the Army, and, and we were training together with a lot of different things. And when we started realizing, like, we wanted to add body weight exercises with dips and pull-ups to our, our weight training, um, we decided that all of these little pull, you know, like a chin-up bar and stuff, 
wasn't really very indicative of what you would have if you had to pull yourself up to something or if you had to push yourself up that if you looked at the things around you very seldom was there this like perfect one inch smooth round bar right. so we went out and we got a big old birch tree and we you know probably about a good three inch diameter you could really get your hands around it um, and the thinner side of it was probably where you could just kind of barely get your arms around to do underhand pull-ups with it and we put that across two telephone poles and we hung, hung a heavy bag for hitting where it was thickest and over on the other side was where we did pull-ups uh, and then we built a set of dip bars where we used birch about the same size so it was smooth so it wasn't real like an oak rough on your hands right. but you had this rough weird contorted thing your hands had to deal with and you couldn't get a full grip on it and it was much more indicative of you if you had to go over a fence or you had to pull yourself through something and it just seemed like it made a lot more sense than these perfectly round steel poles yeah the the ninja warrior stuff blows me away with some of the some of the creative types of athletic things that they have them do it's just oh you're talking about that, that show where those guys compete those guys are insane yeah I, yeah <laughs> There's a video of a guy that the, that built a training session, chain, training room in his bedroom. It started out with just two little pull-up things, and his whole room developed into this entire, entire Ninja Warrior training place. <laughs> oh wow! As we start talking about ninjas, we come back to uh, to weaponry. So, on the thoughts of weaponry, are there certain um, weapons that you think are usable for defense? Uh, that are not necessarily firearms or projectile weapons because one of the big questions I get that I always have a hard time answering for people because I think in spite of everything we're talking about today, in spite of how advantageous it is, if you end up in a situation where you have gangs of roving looters, you know, with armed to the teeth, that a gun is the only thing that really equalizes that, but there's a lot of in-betweens of that, and that's the extreme. So are there and so I get these questions from people like in, in countries where it's very hard to own firearms. Um, are there weapons that you think are maybe uh, kind of a middle ground? Absolutely. Um, two two in general are are ones that are pretty popular. One is just the basic pocket knife, and the other is a walking cane. The problem with the pocket knife is that <clears throat> people use them, but they don't train with how to use them, and they don't they don't know where to cut and where to strike. Like you talked about cutting the kidneys and that's, yeah. and that's a, a devastating target. But you know, most people, particularly like in the movies that you see, you see somebody holding a knife out in front of you and they're trying to make you afraid of the knife. And they go after whatever's biggest in front of them. Right. They just right. center mass with the knife. One, right? I mean, you should be afraid of any knife, but that's not the knife that you need to be afraid of. You'd be afraid of the knife that comes out in the middle of the fight when you're in close range. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a lot of misunderstandings about knives, and, and Hollywood hasn't helped this either. I was just talking with some folks up at the Free State Project. We're sitting in the bar, and the guy was talking about uh, knives and holding the, you know, the, the, the classic. You've got the knife like you're going to make a punch, blade out of the bottom of your hand, that type of thing, and these these slashing movements and. He was talking about how there's, there's so much advantage. I'm like, well, maybe if you're hiding it and you're bringing it out of close, but actually it's like a totally defunct way to use a knife. And he said, why? And I said, okay. And I had a, um, I think I used a, a pen or something like that. I said, so you're standing there and I want to cut your throat. So I held the pen that way. 
and I tried to slash his throat with the pen real slow, just yeah. to touch him with the pen, and I couldn't reach him. So then I just popped it the, through my knife, you know, like you would hold a knife normally, and then just rotated my hand like a normal slicing motion, and, you know, I could get four inches into his neck with it. Yeah. And, like, you've just reduced your range by half a foot. Well, and um, I, I understand what you're saying. It does increase the range, but the knife is not a range weapon unless you're throwing it at somebody. Correct. The knife is a really close range, and having that reverse grip, uh, it's kind of too hard to explain, um, like, audio, but... Um, there's many, many advantages to having the knife in a reverse grip. The problem... If you know what to do with exactly, it in that exactly. grip, that's the key, right? And the problem is that most people that think that way, they're like, okay, well, I'll put it in a reverse grip. But that's not how you open boxes at your house. You don't open <laughs> your, your pocket knife and put it in a reverse grip to to cut open, you know, to cut a string off of your off your pants. You People train to open it forwards... And that's what they do, and that's how they think. So it would take a lot of intentional training to have that reverse grip and to use it more effectively. Uh, and I, I think one thing we have to be very careful of when we go into the world of knives is any time that you use a, a weapon that, that is capable of creating a lethal result, um, you get into a point of having to defend your actions. Oh, yeah. And a lot of these subversive knife movements, you get into a really gray area there is, did you need to, did you need to use that implement? And then the other side is, if you're in a physical conflict with somebody and you pull a knife, you've just escalated the conflict. Yep. I mean, somebody can, an innocent bystander can justifiably shoot you now, even if you didn't start, start the fight. They may not know that. Yeah. It, it has to be a very, careful decision as anything with a weapon does but really it's uh i think people look at the knife as being such a uh such less aggressive than a gun and i, I think it's completely the other way around there's oh, yeah. more people killed with knives than guns in a lot of different places i ask most police officers and they tell you they're much more worried about somebody with a knife than they are with somebody with a gun absolutely um when val was doing some training with <laughs> north carolina pd um, they had two different officers, one killed and one seriously injured, cut throats where the perp basically kept their hands underneath their body when they tell them to get on the ground and spread out. And when they finally said, okay, we're going to go in and pull the guy's arms out, the guy rolled over and hit him in the throat with a knife. Yep. Two different times this happened. And they were asking Val how he would deal with it. So he had the guy lay on the ground, and he said, put your arms out, and the guys won't put his arms out, you know. So Val walks up behind him and just steps on his testicles from behind. <laughs> and then out come the arms. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's always a way if you're creative. And, you know, I think, I think that it goes back to the Russians doing a, a pencil instead of a $9 million space pen. But uh, there's, there, there's always a way. But there's always dangers like that. Um, and you have some other weapons you mentioned. One was a, uh, a, a, a did you say a walking yeah, cane? Yeah, a walking cane. Um, that's one of the, the um, let's not call it a weapon. That's one of the uh, handicap things that you can bring on an airplane with you. Uh, yeah. Multiple purposes. Um, I was talking with a fairly, uh, a high-ranking martial artist, and he was doing a seminar, and all of his students came onto the plane with, with walking canes. So they were like, you know, 20 guys with walking canes that were all very athletic because you're allowed, you're allowed to bring a cane on. And a, a walking cane is, is very effective. 
Um, it's, it, it can, it's very versatile. Again, it goes back to you've got to train with it. You've got to know how to hit something. You've got to know how to not get it taken away from you. That's, that's a big point that I would, that I would make is not only do you know how to need to know how to hit somebody, you need to know how to keep them, um, from grabbing it and, and pulling it from you, particularly if they've, if they've grabbed it to, to know how to deal with it. Yeah, I completely agree with that. The nice thing about it is it's, it's not a weapon day to day. It's a stick. Yeah. And when you were talking about with the airplane, if, if anybody ever goes to take a walking cane on a stick, uh, a walking cane on a stick, a walking cane on an airplane and TSA asks you anything about it, the magic words are, are you discriminating against me? <laughs> yep. And it just makes it go away so, so fast. Now in your notes, you have something called a rope dart. Yep. Which is kind of a really cool, like, uh, the Buddhist monk thing. Um, I want to hear your thoughts on that, and I want to give you my uh, my airport version of a rope dart after I hear your thoughts on a traditional one. Very cool. Um, the traditional rope dart is just what it sounds like. It's basically a dart on a really long rope, and it kind of developed from the Chinese fishermen of uh, just playing with ropes, sitting on a boat. They got bored and and swinging them around and thrusting them out and being able to pull it back in. And if you ever watch videos of of guys that are really good with this, they, they're quite amazing and can generate lots of power. There's an, another version um, called the uh, cannon something. Um, it's just basically a big steel ball instead of a spike. And I, I just think that that can be improvised really well with a, with a rope or a belt or, or anything that you can put something heavy on the, on the end of. Um, in prison, they would put, um, a battery, they put batteries in a sock. Uh, yep. So that same kind of concept, but instead of just swinging it, you can use it with a thrusting motion once you learn how learn how to do that. Yeah, my uh, my airport friendly version, which I get from Frank Sharp Jr., is you get a piece of chain about a foot long, You're not real real heavy chain, just heavy enough to to serve as something you would lock something up with, and a small padlock. Um, and this is quite useful as a as a flailing or a kind of a, a shooting weapon um, or as a takedown weapon. And when TSA asks you why you have it, you say, I travel all the time and I sleep in airports. And you guys told me to never let my bag out of my sight. So when I'm asleep in a chair in an airport, I lock my bag to my chair. Nice. And <laughs> every time it's ever come up, it's like, no, oh, that makes sense. And uh, to me, that's about as um, effective as a weapon you can get through airport security. Oh, yeah. And it's very, very if you've ever been, if, if you've ever messed with any of these impact weapons like this and screwed up and hit yourself, you know how effective they are. Absolutely. <laughs> my my, uh, my kung fu friend, that, that uh, the one that tossed me eight feet slowly, um, it was probably more than eight feet, but anyway, he tossed me slowly, is an expert at flexible weapons and... and he, I forget how many stitches, but he hit himself with the the steel chain that they use, and it just majorly screwed up his his leg um, from because he he that thing moves really 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 fast uh, in the hands of an expert. So, but yeah, it it hurts when you smack yourself. Yeah, I did knock myself out. I think I was about twelve years old. Knocked myself completely out with a set of four sectional nunchucks and. Uh, <laughs> uh, 
came a little gun shot for a while after that. <laughs> in the Bruce Lee days, um, when he, yeah, when he was famous, there was a guy that actually robbed a bank successfully with nunchucks, got to the door, dropped the bags, started spinning the nunchucks to show off, and knocked himself out. <laughs> <laughs> That's just great. You know, as we're finishing up, I do want to finish with, with one thought on some of the martial arts weapons, because you just made me think of it when you were talking about, like, the Chinese fishermen and all. But a lot of these weapons come from uh, things that were used in rural life yeah. because the people were not allowed to be armed. So the nunchuck goes back to a rice flail, and the sai is an ox pin, uh, car, a pin for an ox cart. Are you? And are you I think that the- there's a lesson there in learning that, if you end up in, in a, a truly uh, dangerous situation, not by your planning, there's almost always something that can be improvised, but understanding the movement and the extension of your hands theory is really what makes you proficient. Are, are you saying that the government would ever take away weapons? I, I know it's shocking, but it's like they did this before. <laughs> and like you had to be a samurai to carry a sword in, in feudal Japan. Like that was, you know, I don't know, just one example of, of that. And, you know, and, 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 you know, you look at a lot of the martial arts around the world, they, they come, you know, why is Filipino stick fighting such an amazingly successful art today? Well, what's the genesis, right? Well, it's just a stick. You can't take this away from me. Yep. And even if you do, I'll go get another one. So maybe I better figure out how to use this. Yeah, well, and, and the, the interesting thing is that's their safety weapon. They, they um, train and fight with machetes. <laughs> so, you know, that's their safety weapon to practice with. Us Americans, we have these uh soft padded things that we that we train with, but you know. <laughs> that's that's yeah, that's yeah. Those guys are kind of crazy. <laughs> but it works. Well, um and and yeah, it can uh there's a a story by uh uh Grandmaster Priestes, uh Remy Priestes that this guy came in in the Philippines was was bragging about how uh, how much better the Japanese sword was. And, you know, this was kind of back in the day, and, and he, he kind of confronted him and said, hey, uh, you know, I've heard you've been bragging, and, and I have the issue with that. And anyway, they they ended up in a in a fight with live with live blade. And oh, wow. Remy took uh, sticks instead of machetes, and he broke both of the guy's wrists. <laughs> and um, <laughs> so uh, years later, I had opportunity to, to go to seminars with Remy Priestess and I asked him about it. And I said, hey, you know, is this is this true? And and he and he looked at me and he was like, with just this kind of nonchalant look. And he goes, yes, he was an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> well, and a guy with the sword should have read the Book of Five Rings and uh, understood the the. the there's the inherent advantage of two weapons versus one, and maybe he wouldn't have had broken wrists uh, <laughs> and a loud mouth. But uh, anyway, uh, very, very interesting discussion today, Young. Uh, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much. I'm honored to be on the show and, and um, love what you're doing. And uh, I, I just, it, you, what you're doing has helped change me and helped me to realize that I'm really a prepper at heart and that. The martial arts really is uh, be prepared in, in everyday life, and I've tried to expand that to other areas of my life. And, and uh, so thanks for, for allowing me on. 
Well, thanks for being on because you brought up a really a lot of interesting things, and you actually、uh, reminded me of like I think we all learn a lot in our lives, but sometimes you forget what you learned, and、uh, you kind of took me back through some、uh, some very interesting memories. And I think that martial arts is a great discipline, not just because. You can you can win in a conflict, but I think it it, it creates greater situational awareness, which is、uh, kind of what you led off with. And I think that everybody can benefit from some level of training. And I think that every person, every student, can find a teacher that is accommodating to what they're really looking for. So、uh, I appreciate you being with us and bringing up great points like that. Thanks again. And folks, with that, this has been Jack Spierko today, along with Young Smith, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough. Or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, and we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. You don't have to be another face in the crowd. Nobody up there cares. They're leaving.